Today's Monday, January 24th, 2022. Today's podcast is a little more off the cuff than usual. A few weeks ago, there was an article published in the New York Times about genetic tests in pregnancy, and it caused a lot of uproar. I saw a few responses to this in the Times and online and thought that this podcast might be a helpful way to disseminate more information on the topic and a direct response to the article. So I recorded this one solo. It's not how I like doing the podcast, but it was the fastest way to record, edit, and post this, which I thought was important. If you have not yet seen the article, I believe we're posting a link to it with our social media ads and also on our website, or you can use the Google to find it. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. See you Thursday on High Risk Birth Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, everyone, I'm going to be rolling solo for this podcast today. And the reason I decided to do this is there was an article that came out in the New York Times on New Year's, on January 1st, 2022. It was written by Sarah Cliff and Atish Bhatia. I apologize if I mispronounced either name. And it was titled, When They Warn of Rare Disorders, These Prenatal Tests Are Usually Wrong. And basically, this article caused a lot of stir surrounding prenatal screening and testing. And I know that I've been getting a lot of questions about it from my own patients and from family and friends. And I thought it'd be helpful to use this podcast to give my take on the topic. Think of it maybe like a rebuttal to the article and maybe to clear up some what I think are a few misconceptions regarding the article and regarding prenatal screening and testing in general. So in terms of some background on the article, uh, if you haven't read it, uh, you can Google it and you know find it, read it if you'd like. The article is well-written and it seems uh, to be researched well. I, I don't know the authors or their knowledge of the topic. So again, I'm not criticizing the authors at all. I just want to be clear about that. And the article focuses on really the patient experience of receiving a wrong result on a genetic test. Uh, And I'm going to go into what that means, a wrong result. I'm actually going to read the first few paragraphs of the article. Okay, so this is from the article. After a year of fertility treatments, Yael Geller was thrilled when she found out she was pregnant in November 2020. Following a normal ultrasound, she was confident enough to tell her three-year-old son his brother or sister was in her belly. But a few weeks later, as she was driving her son home from school, her doctor's office called. A prenatal blood test indicated her fetus might be missing part of a chromosome, which could lead to serious ailments and mental illness. Sitting on the couch that evening with her husband, she cried as she explained they might be facing a decision on terminating the pregnancy. He sat quietly with the news. How is this happening to me, Miss Geller, 32, recalled thinking. The next day, doctor used a long, painful needle to retrieve a small piece of her placenta. It was tested and showed the initial result was wrong. She now has a six-month-old, Emmanuel, who shows no signs of the condition he screened positive for. Miss Geller has been misled by a wondrous promise that Silicon Valley technology has made to expectant mothers, that a few vials of their blood drawn in the first trimester can allow companies to detect serious developmental problems in the DNA of the fetus with remarkable accuracy. 
In just over a decade, the tests have gone from laboratory experiments to an industry that serves more than a third of the pregnant women in America, luring major companies, and so forth. So the authors then go on to describe the newer technology that's used for prenatal testing for Down syndrome and the expansion of testing for other more rare conditions. The authors then state, quote, the grave predictions made by those newer tests are usually wrong, an examination by the New York Times has found, end quote. They discuss how when the test says the baby has one of these, the, quote, positive results are incorrect more than 90% of the time, end quote. And then they talk about how the companies describe the products as reliable and accurate and that the companies are being misleading. There's a lot to unpack here with this article. But in case you don't want to listen to this entire podcast, here's my short take. It is true that when one of these tests comes back as abnormal, most of the time, the baby is fine. But that's not the problem. The problem is when the patient or the doctor don't know that going into the test, and then they misinterpret the results. When the tests are used correctly by providers who know what they're intended to do and communicate that correctly to their patients, these tests can be very helpful. All right, now we're going to go into the long answer. We've done several full-length podcasts on this, on aneuploidy screening and genetic testing in general, so feel free to listen to those. But basically, I want to start with a history of how we got to this place. And basically, this started with a desire to diagnose or to let women who are pregnant know whether their babies, who they're carrying, do or don't have Down syndrome. This was really the first condition that we were testing for. And Down syndrome is a condition where in every cell in the body, instead of having 46 chromosomes, there's 47 chromosomes. The extra chromosome is the 21st chromosome. So instead of having two 21st chromosomes, you would have three. So it's also called trisomy 21, meaning three copies of the 21st. There are other genetic conditions where you have extra or missing chromosomes, what we call aneuploidy. For example, there's trisomy 18, which is three copies of the 18th chromosome, trisomy 13, which is three copies of the 13th chromosome. And then there are some sex conditions like with the XY chromosome, which is a 23rd pair. And so that was the desire. How do we find out which women are carrying babies with these conditions? And the only way, this is way back when, the only way we could figure it out and the only way to know for sure, which is still true, is to do an invasive test like an amniocentesis or a chorionic villus sampling or CVS, which is, I assume, the procedure they talked about in the article because that's the long needle going into the placenta. Again, we did a podcast on amnio and CVS. You can look on that or listen to that directly to you know hear all about it. But basically, that's the only way to know for sure. So the question is, all right, who should get an amnio or CVS? Should it be every pregnant woman? Should it be no pregnant women? Or should it be some pregnant women? And at the time, there was a thought that we shouldn't do it for everyone because it's painful. There's a risk of miscarriage. Maybe there's cost, like money cost associated with it. So that doesn't make sense. But if we do it for nobody, then no one's going to be able to find out this information. And so the concept of screening was then invented, not invented in general, but invented for this. And for screening, the point of it is to take a whole group of women who are pregnant and make a decision about which ones we should do an amniocentesis or CVS on and which ones we shouldn't. And 
This was based on the risk, meaning someone who's at a higher risk of having a baby with Down syndrome, we're going to do the amniocentesis for her or CVS, and someone who's at a much lower risk, we're not going to. Now, as an aside, this really is not about us doctors deciding for the women, but really them deciding whether they want it or not, but sort of I'm going to couch it in someone who's high risk, it's going to get done, and someone who's low risk, it's not going to get done, though it's obviously always the choice of the woman whether to do it or not, or whether to be involved in this process at all, meaning she may not want any screening or testing, and we'll talk about that. But basically, how do we triage, so to speak? And then the first screen that we had was simply the age of the mother. It's been known for a very long time that as women get older, the risk of one of these conditions, what we call aneuploidy, an extra or missing chromosome happening, goes up. And so what originally happened is we drew a line in the sand and said, okay, anybody who's 35 years and older should get an amniocentesis because the likelihood of them having a baby with Down syndrome or one of these other conditions are higher. And anyone who's 34 years, 11 months, and 31 days or younger should not have one. And the reason that was used as the screen is because that's all we had. All we knew is that as the mother gets older, the risk goes up. And so age 35 was used. And that's where this term advanced maternal age came from and so forth. Now, to be fair, that's pretty crude, right? In saying that, you know, there's a cutoff, meaning there's no real difference between someone who's 34 and 35 or between 35 and 36. But that's sort of the first screen that was invented to sort of draw that line in the sand to decide who's at a higher risk and should get uh, an amniocentesis. Now, to also to be clear, the women who are over 35, the majority of them did not have a baby with Down syndrome. And by majority, 99%, 98%, whatever it is, the vast majority did not have a baby with Down syndrome. And so using age as a screen, you would also conclude age as a screen is wrong 98% of the time. Just taking it back to how this article sort of couches it. After age, there were more tests that were developed to help screen a little bit more accurately. There was blood serum tests like serum hormone tests, then an ultrasound test like the nuchal translucency, and that's still uh, done a lot nowadays. And using the age of the mother plus some blood tests plus an ultrasound, we were able to screen a little bit better to sort of separate who was higher risk and who was lower risk. When we were using these tests to help differentiate who is at an increased risk and who is not at an increased risk, there was a similar issue with people misinterpreting what a positive screen meant, meaning you would get back a report that used the data from the age, the ultrasound, and the blood tests, and the report would say normal or abnormal. And abnormal did not mean your baby has Down syndrome. It just means you are now at an increased risk compared to before. So maybe that risk was 1%, maybe it was 2%, maybe it was 5%, maybe it was 10%, whatever it was, it was sort of above a certain number. And therefore, you have screened into the group that should probably get a CVS or amniocentesis to know for sure. But again, people misinterpreted it at the time and they would say, oh, the doctor told me my baby had Down syndrome. And then when I did a CVS or amnio, they were wrong. And it's possible that the patient misinterpreted what the doctor said. It's possible the doctor misinterpreted the test and told it to the patient wrong. But either way, that's not what the test was meant to do. It was not meant to say which baby has Down syndrome or any other aneuploidy. It was meant to say who's at a higher risk and who's not at a higher risk. Then along came cell-free 
fetal DNA, which is the game changer. And this is sort of the test that this article is talking about. The concept of cell-free fetal DNA is that if we draw blood from the mother, in her blood, there is floating, free-floating pieces of DNA in there. The majority of it is her DNA. And a minority of it called 5%, 6%, 10%, somewhere in that range is actually DNA that comes from the baby. Technically, it comes from the placenta, not from the baby, but the placenta DNA and the baby's DNA are basically the same. And then using different complicated technologies, the lab can sort of differentiate the mother's DNA from the baby's DNA and then test the DNA directly to say, does the baby have aneuploidy, an extra missing chromosome? The one that people understand the best is can they determine if the baby's a boy or a girl, right? XY or XX. And it's pretty straightforward. People get that if we look in the mother's blood and in the DNA floating, we find a lot of Y chromosome floating around there. Well, that's not her. She's carrying a boy. And if we find no Y chromosome floating around there, she's having a girl. But the same is true regarding the 21st chromosome. And so we could test for Down syndrome. And the reason cell-free fetal DNA became a game changer is because Unlike using age and the serum hormones and the nuchal, this was very, very highly predictive, meaning a normal test on the cell-free DNA made your risk of having a baby with one of these conditions extremely low, and having an abnormal test made it extremely high. Now, it was not and is not 100%, but it was high. You know, In some situations, it was above 50%, above 70%, above 90%, meaning really, really high. And much higher than we ever got with the previous screens. But it's still a screen. Same concept. If someone has the cell-free fetal DNA and it says you're at a high risk for trisomy 13, trisomy 18, Down syndrome, which is trisomy 21, or Turner syndrome, which is a sex chromosome with a one X chromosome and not another one, the correct interpretation is not my baby has this. The correct interpretation is, oh, I'm at an increased risk if I want to know for sure I have to do an amniocentesis or a CVS. For a negative test, meaning a normal test, the same is true. It doesn't mean 100% my baby doesn't have it. It just means a very, very, very low risk. And so that's how the test is used now. What the article is talking about is the technology for this test has increased and expanded. So not only can it be used to test for an extra or missing chromosome, it can now start looking for things called micro deletions and micro insertions, an extra or missing small piece of DNA within one chromosome, meaning the count of chromosomes is normal, it's still 46 chromosomes. But there are some conditions where a tiny bit of DNA is missing or a tiny bit of DNA is added. And the test, this cell free DNA test, can be used to look for these disorders. Now, before this, there was no other way to screen for these other than doing an amniocentesis or CVS and saying, all right, let's actually look at the chromosomes and see if this little piece of DNA is missing. And there are conditions, most of them, you've never heard of them, right? These are rare conditions. Let's say it's about a hundred of them. All of them combined, the likelihood of it happening is 1%, give or take. So you're talking each one of them is ballpark one in a thousand, one in 10,000. There's really not, it doesn't happen that frequently. So a lot of these conditions people never heard of. Uh, you know, there's something called Williams syndrome. There's something called Prader-Willi. There's something called Angelman. There's, these are syndromes that maybe you've heard of someone who's had it, but generally not. But again, before cell-free fetal DNA, the only way to know anything about these conditions is to do an amniocentesis or CVS. So the concept is these labs started using the cell-free DNA 
technology to start screening, screening, not testing, for these conditions. And what they do is the same concept. You get back a report and it'll tell you whether you're an increased risk or decreased risk for this. Now, when you get back the results for this, if it's abnormal, again, it does not mean your baby has one of these conditions. It just means you're at an increased risk for having these conditions. And exactly what that risk is depends on the specific tests, but they tend to range approximately in the 5 to 10% range, meaning instead of it being 1 in 1,000, it's now like 5 to 10%, which is you know 1 in 10, 1 in 20, so it's much, much higher. But again, that means that 90 to 95% of the time, it's not, it's not true. Your baby does not have one of these conditions. It also happens to be that the technology is now developing or developed that they can test not just for what we call micro deletions, but they can test for actual single gene mutations. These are conditions caused by single genes that until now, we really couldn't screen for them at all again until amniocentesis or CVS. But again, these actually seem to be even more accurate that if it's abnormal, it's much higher than 5 to 10%. The concept is these are all screens. They're not meant to be diagnostic to tell you an answer. They're meant to screen to see who might want to do an amniocentesis or CVS to find out for sure. So taking all this, when I meet with patients, I give them three options. I say option number one is, and this is in no order, let's do nothing, right? You don't want to do any screening for any genetic conditions for whatever reason. Either you have no intention of terminating a pregnancy and therefore you don't want to know because it'll just cause you stress potentially, or you're just highly confident that everything's going to be okay. You're young, you're healthy, there's no family risk. You don't want to sort of deal with the stress of screening and maybe getting an abnormal result and then doing an amnio or CVS. Fine, then you do nothing. On the other end, I want to do everything. I want to do an amnio or CVS. I want to test for everything we can. Let's test for aneuploidy. Let's test for these micro deletions. Let's test for anything that runs in my family. Let's test for everything we can so I can know 100% either way. Again, that involves a needle getting stuck in your belly and it's, you know, uh, painful potentially, and there's some risk. And the third option is sort of what I call the middle option, which is to do a screening test, whether the blood test, the ultrasound, a combination, and let that guide your decision. If it comes back, quote unquote, normal, again, it doesn't mean there's a 0% chance of anything, but it's very, very low. And you're going to say, all right, I'm done. I'm now moving to the do nothing more category. And if it comes back abnormal, it does not diagnose my baby with anything. It just means we're going to move to the other side and do an invasive test. And so when you do the screening test, it's going to either lead to no more testing or an invasive testing, but the screening test itself is not a diagnostic test. It's merely a screen. Okay. So knowing all that, I think the big issue with this article is that the authors, when they're describing it, they're describing these as tests, but in fact, they're not tests. Their screens. There's a very big difference. A test is meant to give you an answer, whereas a screen is meant to select people from a larger group to get tested. So let's talk a little bit more about this screening versus testing. I'm going to use a crude example, but it's not medical. So it's something that I think you'll all understand and know a lot about airport security screening. All right, we all hate airport security screening, but follow along. So the point of the screen, and let's let's just talk about the, the walking through the metal detector. Forget about screening our bags. That's a whole different story. So the point of walking through the metal detector is to keep someone from boarding the plane with a weapon on them. 
Now, obviously, that's a pretty rare occurrence, but we've sort of agreed as a society that it's worth having everyone walk through a metal detector before they get on a plane to prevent that rare occurrence. Now, we might disagree the best way to do it and exactly how sensitive these metal detectors should be and whether it's really necessary in everybody, every circumstance. But I think most people are comfortable with the concept of before you get on a plane, walk through a metal detector. All right. So when you walk through a metal detector, if it doesn't beep, you're done. You've passed. You go through. They're never going to have you walk through a metal detector again before you get on the plane. Now, if it does beep, all right, they say, all right, have you taken off your belt? Is there any metal in your pockets? You do that and you try again. And if it still beeps, they go to phase two, which is they make you stand there with your arms out. They do the wand thing. Maybe they pat you down. And assuming everything's normal, you go along. So the question is, if the second screen is getting wanded and patted down, and that's really the better way to go, why don't they just do it for everybody? Why do we deal with the metal detector? Well, obviously, if they had to wand and pat down every single person, number one, it would take a very, very long time. You would need many, many more TSA agents. And it would annoy a tremendous amount of people to get patted down and wanded every time they go through an airport. So we use a metal detector as a screen, and it works. The vast majority of people go through the metal detector, they pass, and they're done. A few people get beeped, they go through again, they get beeped again, and so they get wanded and patted down. Now, if I told you that when the machine beeps, it's wrong 99% of the time, meaning 99% of the time when we wand and pat people down, we don't find any weapons, would you say it's a bad screen? No, of course not. Because when the machine beeps, they don't call you a terrorist and say you have a weapon and put you in prison. They say, oh, it beeped. Let's just make sure it's nothing important. And let's just, you know, wand you and pat you down to make sure there's nothing there. And we don't say that it's therefore a bad screen. But that's what the article does. Essentially, when you do this blood test, this cell-free fetal DNA, and it comes back abnormal. If you say, all right, that person's a terrorist, right? It's abnormal. You're done. It's wrong. You know, it's bad. Then yes, it's going to be wrong 90 to 95% of the time. But if you say, no, 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 the screen came back abnormal. You have a five to 10% risk. We should do more testing, you know, wand you and pat you down. We should do more testing like an amnior CVS to make sure it's not there. That makes a lot of sense. So here's another example from the pregnancy world. We screen for gestational diabetes in every pregnancy, and most people in the U.S. do a two-step screening process. The first thing we do is we have someone come into the lab, have a drink of sugar, and an hour later, we draw their blood. And about one in five people test abnormal, and four in five people pass. Now, the one in five people who test abnormal, it's just a screen. They don't have gestational diabetes after that test. They go on to a much longer and more annoying test, which takes half a day, three hours. They have to come in fasting and they do that test. And when that second test happens, about 80% of people pass and 20% of people fail. And we're all good with this. That makes a lot of sense. We don't want to make every pregnant person take that three-hour, half-day fasting test because it's horribly annoying. And it would be very disturbing to a lot of people to have to just do that. So we do a screen. Four out of five people, 80% of people pass and they're done. And one in five are told, hey, your screen's abnormal. You got to move on to the next step. We don't have an expose on this saying, oh, that screen is wrong 80% of the time because we don't tell them they have diabetes from the first screen. We just tell them their screen came back positive and now they have to move on to phase two. And so it's the same concept with this, the non-invasive screening. It's not a test. We need to be very clear not to conflate the terms test 
and screen. In the article, they keep referring to it as a test when in fact it's a screen. It's not meant to diagnose anything. It's meant to tell a person if their risk of one of these conditions is still one in a thousand or less, or if now it's closer to five or 10%. It's the same math we used to use for Down syndrome screening when we just did the ultrasound and the serum blood test. It's not conceptually different, but if we don't understand that and we don't understand the point of it, it absolutely can be very anxiety provoking. One of the problems is yes, I agree. I think a lot of the companies do misstate some of their data. And I don't think they're saying things that are untrue. I think that they are basically talking about accuracy, which is different from positive predictive value. Meaning if I say a test is 95% accurate, what does that mean, 95% accurate? What it means is if they have a thousand tests run, right? 950 of them are going to be correct and 50 of them are going to be incorrect. That means 95% accurate. But that's not really relevant. What people are looking for with these tests is not the accuracy. It's the positive predictive value, which is basically if I get an abnormal test, what is the chance my baby has the condition? It's not the accuracy. It's not 95%. It's a positive predictive value, which is about 5 to 10%. And so I don't think that the people who are selling these, like the sales reps, are intentionally misleading. I think that this is very complicated statistically, and they're told, you know, hey, this test is 95% accurate. And so they're going to say, this is a great test, it's 95% accurate. The companies know that the positive predictive value is 5 to 10%, at least the people who work in the lab and the companies know that. And in fact, they're very clear, like in their literature, that it's not diagnostic, it's a screen, you should confirm it with a CVS or amnio. But that gets lost for sure, either in the translation from the lab to their salespeople or from the salespeople to the doctors or from the doctors to the patients. And so I do think, sort of coming back and summing it up, I do think the article did a really good job of bringing a problem to the forefront. And the problem is that there's a lot of people who don't understand these tests, what we're doing, why we're doing them, what it means when it's normal, what it means when it screens abnormal. And when I say a lot of people, I'm not talking about the listeners here. I'm not talking about patients, even though that might be true. I'm talking about doctors. I think there's a lot of providers, doctors, midwives, nurses, whoever, people who order these tests who don't really get it. And any test, particularly about something so sensitive, you know, someone's baby, the health of their child, in the wrong hands, they can be quote unquote weaponized to cause a lot of stress and anxiety. If I call someone up and say, hey, your test is abnormal, you have a really high risk of your baby having this condition. Oh my God, like that's really, really terrifying. Whereas if I call it, you know, before we do the test, I say, listen, we're doing this test as a screen. You're at very low risk from this sort of statistically. This will tell you if you're still low risk, or in fact, you're a little bit higher risk. But even if it's a little bit higher risk, we just means we're going to do an invasive test to see this. I'm not to be sure, but most likely it would be normal. Now, again, it depends on the test for something like Down syndrome. If it comes back abnormal, it's not 5 to 10%. It could be 50%, 70%, 90%, again, based on the circumstances. But for these in particular, it's still going to be relatively on the low side. So the people who order these tests need to know what they're ordering and how to interpret them. And they need to tell people about them before they're ordered, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And some people might not want them. And that's perfectly fine. And I think for you know our own patients and for listeners and others out there who might be getting this test, if you don't think you're getting that right explanation, that's really important to find out 
What exactly does it mean to help reduce stress in case it comes back abnormal? I think that if the tests are used correctly, they do allow us to screen for conditions we were never able to screen for in the past. And the technology is only getting better. It's not getting worse. So we do have an option to do no testing and hope the baby is fine. And honestly, that's usually going to work out. Most babies are fine. But a lot of people who are pregnant are not comfortable with that. You know, in my experience, there's a lot of people who want to know as much as they can. And so coming back to it, the way we talk about this in pregnancy with testing is, again, there's three options. You could do no screening, and that's perfectly fine. A lot of people choose to do no screening. Statistically, it's going to work out most of the time. Most babies are okay. Uh, or some people don't want to go through the stress, or they don't want to be put in a position where they're thinking about terminating a pregnancy. Great. Don't do any screening. That's perfectly fine. Other people know from the very beginning, I want to know everything I can, every test that's available. And so those should probably just do a CVS or an amniocentesis and get all the information they can. And then for everyone else, it's sort of the middle. Hey, let's do these screening tests, see where we stand. Most of the time, everything's going to come back fine in the screen, which lowers your risk. Probably it's about 1% or so of having any genetic condition. I'm comfortable living with that and move on. No more testing. Or if it comes back abnormal, based on what comes back abnormal, my risk is maybe 5%, 10%, 50%, 70%, again, based on what comes back. And then I can, again, you don't have to do an invasive test like a CVS or an amnio, but most of the time, if you're doing the screen, it's because you want to decide whether to do that. You'll do the invasive test, hopefully get good news that in fact, there's no issue whatsoever. Or if you get bad news, at least you know, and then this is the reason you did it. You can decide what you want to do moving forward. And I think under that context, it really overall reduces anxiety. So again, I think that the article does bring up to the forefront a problem that exists. I don't think it's the problem that they state. I don't think the problem is the test or the screen as it should be called. I think the problem is the knowledge surrounding it. And I think that when people are ordering it, if they know what they're ordering and can convey that correctly and meaningfully to their patients, I think that it's not going to be the kind of problem that they're describing. I think, in fact, it could be a very good thing and a very helpful thing. So what can everybody do out there? I think for people who are listening who are going to order these tests, whether you're a doctor, midwife, whoever, I think it's really important to know what you're ordering and to be able to convey that information to the patients correctly and that your staff should convey it correctly and it should not be misinterpreted. And I think for those of you out there who are going to get the test done on you, be educated about it. Listen to this podcast, look online, whatever it is, go to the company website. They'll tell you the statistics about it. They don't lie about their stats. It's just sometimes it's misleading. And if you get news from a blood test that says your baby's abnormal, you should really question that. The blood test is a screen. It's not a test. It does not make a diagnosis. I hope this was helpful. Again, I don't really do a lot of podcasts alone. It's not my thing. I usually like to have a conversation, but I thought this was something really important and I wanted to do it sooner rather than later. So I thought that maybe talking about this on my own, just how I think about this, how I think about the article. And obviously, if you have any questions, you can email in or ask your own uh, doctors or midwives. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. 
If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan. Paid sponsors of the podcast are not involved in the creation of the podcast or any of the content. Support for our sponsors should not be interpreted as medical advice from the podcast, the host, or the guests.